Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This episode 342... And it is the second part of our annual holiday recommendation extravaganza. Hopefully, we're not too late for those of you whose recommendation requests are being filled now. But, you know, next year, it's a two-episode show. We just I, I don't know what we're doing. I don't know why we do this to ourselves every year. It's never not been a two-episode show, I'm pretty sure. No. Get three donuts. You're going to eat two, and you're going to want one more. Just get three donuts. Who are you kidding? It's good advice. Yourself. yourself now I just want a donut. That's my secret. I'm always um, hungry for donuts. Uh, all right, here we go. We're going to get right into it. Well, you want to? I'll do the first read. Sure. Actually, two recommendation requests. Please don't use my name if you choose to answer these. We are choosing them, and we will not use your name. One. My sister has been reading more poetry and wants poetry books. I hardly read any poetry. I have no clue what to get her. Her favorite poets are Louise Gluck, Sharon Olds, and Wallace Stevens. Okay, that's number one. Uh, you want to do that first because those are yours, and I'll take the second one. Why yeah, don't go, sure. Why don't we go that way. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, that's a, an interesting variety of poets. Um, the one I'm most familiar with there is Sharon Olds. I really love her, and there's a like sensuality to her writing that reminded me a lot of Marge Piercy, who is less well known uh, than Sharon Olds, and her work is a little bit older. Um, but I have really loved a lot of her poems as well. So I would look for Marge Piercy. Um, I would be remiss in my Rebecca Shinsky-ness not to say if she's not already reading Mary Oliver, you might put some Mary Oliver in front of her, um, mainly because the collection that was released last year, I believe, called Devotions, um, is a beautiful hardcover. It makes a wonderful gift, and it contains 200 poems that span Mary Oliver's many decades of writing. Um, There's a different kind of sensuality to that work as well. A lot of it is about the natural world, our relationships with the natural world, and some like mindfulness kinds of elements. But when Mary Oliver died earlier this year, there were many wonderful pieces that went back looking at like that this is not just about nature, but many of her poems are explicitly or not quite explicitly about, um, about sexuality and about relationships between humans. Um, she was gay and there is a lot of that text and subtext in her work as well. So, um, for that like branch of Sharon Olds, I think Mary Oliver might be a good pick. And then I had to Google for poets similar to Wallace Stevens and Elizabeth Bishop's name came up frequently. Um, She is not a poet that I have any real familiarity with beyond what I read in school. Um, But I think that if she's your friend is uh, into Wallace Stevens, your sister, um, Elizabeth Bishop might be a good pick. She might also have read some Elizabeth Bishop, though. She's this widely into poetry. So take a peek at those shelves first. I love Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, the couple of, you know, The Art of Losing, The Moth, accessible but also difficult, and, and not thematically similar to Mary Oliver, but in this way, a poet's poets that non-poets also enjoy. I mean, that's not a pejorative, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. it feels accessible, but also 
it has multiple layers if you want to keep going. Um, as opposed to someone as a contemporary like Hart Crane, which all there is is the dark soul of the night at the covered in a whole bunch of language. Um, you can read Elizabeth Bishop in a lot of different ways and a lot of different moves with a lot of different layers of scrutiny. Um, an interesting woman for her time, well, interesting woman, imperial, but interesting woman in her time wrote great letters too. There's two, I'm proud, I'm sure there's probably the same thing. There are two volumes of the complete Elizabeth Bishop and volume one, I think if you're going to buy one, get volume one. That's, I can even be that specific uh, with Elizabeth Bishop here. Let's do an ad, uh, and then after the sponsor break, we'll do the second half of this question. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Well, I have most of these, so you do the reading. Yes. Yeah. I'm still just delighted that we had a nice little synergy moment there where I had been like Elizabeth Bishop, shruggy face, and you were like, yes, Elizabeth Bishop, here we are. (laughs) All right. So the second question from this person, uh, my dad likes what we affectionately call dad books. Everybody knows what that means, listener. You're good. Um, His favorite recent read was The Pioneers by David McCullough. He's 84 and fairly conservative. Um, A left-leaning screed, therefore, is not going to be appropriate as a Christmas gift. Um, so that is what we're looking for. Um, she, our listener here. Oh, never mind. We don't need to read that last yeah. part. So we're looking for dad books for an 84 year old, fairly conservative. What do you have? Um, one that's pretty straight down the middle. And uh, maybe this is a little more specific because my dad was in the Navy and I like the movie Top Gun and I've always liked 
military aircraft for some reason. I used to build models of military aircraft when I was a kid. But Top Gun by Dan Pedersen. Dan Pedersen was the original founder of the Top Gun, uh, what became known as Top Gun as the Navy Advanced Weaponry School um, that the movie became based on. He was a consultant for the movie Top Gun about basically the phenomenon where the Navy, especially fighter corps, needed different tactics to fight MiGs in Vietnam because – this is nerdy. It's going to be over in 30 seconds. I'm so <laughs> sorry, everyone. Because the visual flight rules they were given by the Department of Defense was they needed visual confirmation that what they were shooting at were MiGs and not commercial airplanes or something else. They actually needed to know they were Vietnamese military fighters. So – the planes that they had, the F-4 Phantoms, were really meant for 50-mile-plus-away missiles, right, where you're not going to ever see the plane. Your radar and missiles and off you go. They had to get up close and personal to make sure with the human eyes that it was a MiG, but they, hadn't, they weren't trained in tactics of dogfighting. So where in World War II, for example, I think something like the kill ratio for American pilots versus Japanese and German pilots was like something like 3 to 1. And then in Korea, it was like 12 to 1 when the Americans had the F-86 Sabres, which is totally outclassed with the the Koreans had. It was down to like 1.4 to 1 in Vietnam. And so I also like organizational thinking. The Navy said, we need new tactics. Let's let's give these guys who are sort of hot rodders, they would go out and sort of dogfight against themselves off the company ticket. Like the Navy wouldn't know they were taking these planes out in the middle of the desert. Seems impossible to believe now. But they basically would practice after school how to dogfight, and that became the seed of Top Gun. You get a lot of interesting military history. You get some geopolitical history. You get technological, technological history. Um, if, you're, if your dad is 84 and likes books about American history, this is, a, this is one of those little lenses that scopes out, and you get the firsthand account. Um, and there's a nice cultural reference, right? Everyone's heard of Top Gun, but maybe you didn't actually know it's a real thing or how and how not does it rely, um, relate to the movie that actually existed. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't try to tweak a little bit. And this is not a liberal screed. This is just the facts, ma'am. But The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, which is about the black diaspora out of the South um, and how black people moved around the country, is one of the great nonfiction books of the century. There's, I don't, in my experience, I think, I don't know who reads more nonfiction than I do. Um, not too many people that I know, and I've read a lot. And this is one of the very best in terms of research, in terms of audiobook performance, especially in terms of scope and scale and warmth and tenderness and impact. It's just a really remarkable book. Now, it's the pioneers, but for black people, not a liberal thing. That's just the truth. I would encourage you to think about that for your dad. You know your own dynamic and what's going on here, but this is not a left-wing screed. This is how it <laughs> happened. Um, that the post-Civil War, especially post-Civil War, a diaspora of black people out of the South during Reconstruction and beyond happened, how it affected them, how it affected black culture, how it affected American life. Those are my two picks. All right. Um, that little Top Gun moment was like the dad book of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, have we talked about this on the show before, my grand unified theory of dad books? Like, why is it a I... thing? I don't know if we've talked about it on the show. We've definitely talked about it. Yeah. Maybe that's a future bonus episode where we can, we can – <laughs> the anatomy of a dad book um, <laughs> is interesting. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll read this since you did the last. Hello. Hello. I'm trying to find books for two people on my holiday gift list. The first person is currently doing their PhD in cancer biology and will be starting a new graduate program in medical illustration. This person sounds like the most interesting person mm -hmm. I've met. He enjoys Zelda – 
Yes, is role-playing video games and board games drawing with watercolors, 3D modeling, and cooking. A real renaissance human, this person sounds like. Recently has been excited to get into the Netflix adaptation of The Dark Crystal, enjoys Studio Ghibli films, as do I, as do I. He's not much a reader, but has appreciated cookbooks gifted him, is interested about books about modern art, graphic novels, and would be great or any other engaging nonfiction title. Let's start there. All right. Is that just me or did you? Oh, you have a couple. I, I have a couple too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, this person does sound super interesting. I really want to be friends with them. My first pick was Building Stories by Chris Ware, which was big um, several years ago. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really cool sort of experiential, experimental way of doing comics where like you open this big box and there are a bunch of different kinds of comics, um, a bunch of different pieces or elements in different sizes that have different parts of a story. And they represent um, different people who all live in the same like building or neighborhood. You can take them apart and put them back together. You can read them in any order and then you can shuffle them up and read them in a different order and tell yourself different stories. And for somebody like me, who is I like a, you know, I'm used to reading linear kinds of narratives. I was new to comics at the time. I was like, but what if I do it wrong? Um, Mm -hmm. But somebody who is really into comics and into that kind of creative art and way of looking at things, I think building stories is a really excellent gift um, and something that they can go back to over and over. On the cookbook tip, if they do not have salt, fat, acid, heat by Samin Nosrat, that is absolutely a must have, not only because it's educational and informative like you can learn how to cook from not knowing how to cook in this book she lays out all of the basics um, but it's also really beautifully illustrated and there are like the illustrations are not just beautiful they're also incredibly functional so there's like a gorgeously illustrated chart about the different kinds of salt and how much of each kind to use on different kinds of meat and that's just like one example um it's a wonderful reference. The recipes are really fantastic. I've cooked from it a ton over the last few years and the illustrations are are beautiful. So I would say building stories, salt, fat, acid, eat. Building stories is an unbelievable pick. My yes. jealousy for that is so extreme that I can <laughs> barely breathe. I feel so victorious. Medical. I mean, this person likes illustration. It is it's a it's a comic slash work of art, not in the way that like comics can't be art, but like as a more traditional work of visual art. It's like borderline sculpture. It's an incredible gift because you open it up and like you're just still opening stuff up yeah. and moving stuff around. It's a great gift. It it's great so hard to, to describe. I felt like I was just yeah. saying words, but I really do think that's a great gift for this person. I, I it's it's complicated enough of a production to make those i wonder are those still in quote-unquote print or whatever Ooh, verb you use to I don't describe know. how those things are made i wonder because i have one sitting on top of my bookshelf like it doesn't even fit on a bookshelf yeah like it's oh, like yes. it has to sit on top it looks like you can get it on amazon i just okay checked. good it's a great it's a wonderful idea i think that's a really good gift if you're looking for i went a little more like edgy traditional graphic novels comics things i like listen if they like graphic novels and comics and they haven't and they like zelda they like the dark crystal it just came out in August, Saga Compendium 1, Fiona Staples' illustration, Brian K. Vaughn as the author. It is Star Wars. It's like if Game of Thrones and Star... If you had the Game of, Th- Game of Thrones kind of sensibility and adultness in a sort of Star Wars space opera mode, you get Saga. It's profane. It's sexual. It's violent. It's difficult. It's hard. It's complicated. It's arresting. It's kind of disturbing at times. And really, without question, I don't think, now I I could be wrong, from my point of view, as a moderate to advanced comics fan, 
I think is going to hold up as one of the great comics creations of the decade, uh, of the century so mm-hmm. far. I, it really is up there. It's also not being adapted. So it, right now it exists as a comics only medium. I would be surprised if that would last forever. I think we've talked about on the show before. Like for me, that would be the most exciting property for like someone like HBO to pick up. You think Watchmen's HBO adaptation is bonkers? You ain't, <laughs> you ain't heard nothing yet about Saga. And I would love to see it. On the other hand, I'm sort of glad it isn't. But it's 1,328 pages. It's a, you can get through a whole bunch of them at one time. The paper, it's a paperback only. It's 40 bucks. So it's a little on the expensive side for a book, but it is a treasure trove, winter reading. You're going to tear through it like you would tear through a video game, like a 100-hour Breath of the Wild Zelda kind of video game. I would be shocked um, if this person didn't like it. I think probably a combination, depending on where you want to go, more narrative, more art, um, look, building stories is a better recommendation. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna <laughs> pretend that it's not. I think Saga is a home run too, though. This that's an so, excellent pick. But it's more narrative. It's more conventional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're looking for a little more conventional, that's fine. If you want a little more unconventional, then Building Stories is absolutely the right um, selection there. I also suggested Monstrous, which is um, Marjorie Liu's horror fantasy series, which I've really liked, and I'm a little behind on because. It's such a mood. I need to be in the mood for the mood. Like, I need it to be sunny. I can't, these midwinter horror things is not okay. I'm going to wait for April. Um, but it's beautiful and arresting. A little more traditional, well, it's like, it's more traditional fantasy where Saga is really space opera and the, uh, a sibling, or excuse me, an uh, offspring of Star Wars, where Monstrous is more of an offspring of something like Lord of the Rings, but with more diversity and more edginess. Um, and it's really beautiful. And there's a whole bunch of them. I don't know. There are big collections of Monstrous, but they're absolutely gorgeous, too. Monstrous, for this person who's into illustration, I think Monstrous is prettier than Saga, um, just on a just pure like panel-per-panel basis. But I feel like I, there's something about the style that um, Fiona Staples does with Saga that feels more immediate. With Monstrous, I feel like I'm looking at paintings. And with Saga, I really do get more lost in the story. Um, I'm not sure if that's helpful. I'm just saying things about what I've experienced <laughs> now. Uh, okay, religious person. So I guess this is me. The next person is a person of faith, is not much of a reader as well, but would enjoy a book recommended by family and friends. Romance or violence is a no-go, but books centered on family and friendship and nonfiction titles would be great. This one is challenging. I think this was, was a little bit tougher, at least for me, um, not being religious. And I was trying to, what can, like, what about nonfiction might be in that wheelhouse that I've read? Um, I think that this is a pretty solid pick, though. It's called Tell Me More about stories about the 12 hardest things I'm learning to say. It's by Kelly Corrigan. Came out a couple years ago, and I continue to think about it. Um, it's about her as a woman, as a partner, as a parent, as just like a person in the world, um, thinking about the phrases and questions that we can say in our relationships that bring about connection and love. And each chapter is about a different one of these 12 things. So one of the one of the things is, tell me more. Um, one of the things is, I don't know. One of the things is, I was wrong. Um, and in the con, like in the con, in the, ooh, I'm tongue tied, in the um, process of talking about why you would say, tell me more, or in the process of talking about why you would say I was wrong. She also talks about things that we often say that are like social niceties, but that aren't actually helpful to the person on the other end or um, that don't actually bring about the connection. So that whole like 
And Kelly Corgan, one of her previous memoirs was about um, her experience with breast cancer. So she writes about like, you don't want to hear someone say, oh, I know how you feel. And, but she offers a chapter about like what is more helpful or appropriate or lending to connection um, that you could say to a person who's going through something difficult or that you could ask um, the kinds of things to say, the kinds of questions to ask that generate like real open conversation. This book feels like a really practical, warm like friendly companion to all the theory kinds of stuff that Brene Brown does. I think they live in the same sort of wheelhouse and someone who is, um, who values their spiritual life and who cares about connection and family and friendship. I think that that is a solid pick. Um, a little bit outside that wheelhouse, I was thinking about All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung, which is a wonderful memoir that came out last year um, about her being adopted. Um, I believe she, I should have looked this up. I believe she's Korean American and she was adopted by a white couple. And as she grew up, she wanted to know more about her birth family and find connection with them. Um, it was complex and painful and wonderful and difficult and sort of just a whole journey. And she writes about that, about her identity, about, um, straddling two families. It's not necessarily an easy read, but it's very wonderful um, and really gets to, what makes a family and how we think about families um, in the sort of in a more modern sense. I think that that might work for your person here, but if I had to pick one, I would pick tell me more. I went with, I don't even know how you describe these one's fiction, one nonfiction. If there's not really a word for like cozy mystery, but for like lit fic and nonfiction, but this, these are both in the sort of the cozy, You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, it's, this, uh, your first pick I always talk about is like sweet and whimsical. Yeah, so Toy of the Cat's Pajamas, it's a novel by Marie Helena. Do you know how to say it? Helene? Marie Helene Bertino. Bertino. Helene mm. Bertino. <sighs> Boy, it's even kind of hard to describe. So the plot is there's, it's like a local community kind of centered around this jazz club called the Cat's Pajamas. And the protagonist is, she's what, nine to 12 years old, somewhere yeah, in there. young girl. She's given a wide berth in her life, let's put it that way, <laughs> and it's about this little community, how they take care of each other, how they're connected, and how they're disconnected, and it just feels like, I kind of wish I lived in this little community, kind of like sometimes I wish I lived in Stars Hollow. Yes, If Stars totally. Hollow was set in a Stars, if Stars Hollow was in a city centered around a jazz club, and um, Rory was nine, I kind of feel like you get to him <laughs> at the cat's pajamas. That's a lot of ifs, but you see where I'm going with that. You're not wrong. I think this works. <laughs> I'm not wrong. Not right. You didn't say I'm right, though. <laughs> didn't say I'm right. Um, in the second book, oh, you know what? I didn't even write the author, and I forgot her name. Um, anyway, this is a nonfiction book. It's called The Little Bookstore at Big Stone Gap, and it's about a woman who went to a small town and started to use bookstore, and her husband helps her, and the community gets behind her, and the comings and goings of what it's like to run a bookstore in a little town, and it's nonfiction, and it's delightful, and it's great. <laughs> And it makes you feel, uh, what, what's that Danish word, higa, hig? It does that yeah. for reading. That's it what does. it is. It is. Did you read it's... this book? Yeah, I loved it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. What do you think of those picks? I think this is, I think these are quality selections. Yes. And very They're not safe. green with envy. They're not green with envy selections. Okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Look, we can't, we can't just hit home runs every time, I'm, Jeff. I'm giving you a hard time. Okay, let's drop in another... <laughs> sponsor here and we got a longish i don't know if we can read all the next one but mm -hmm. uh, let's do a sponsor and move on with it 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay. All right, I'll read this one. Yeah. Are you gonna don't read the whole well, thing? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Let's it's a long lot of information. Do, we asked for a lot of information and we got it here. We do. Okay, so we're shopping for dad who likes mm-hmm. quote stereotypical dad things, World War II, the Revolutionary War, John Grisham, and probably James Patterson from time to time. Um years ago they gave him the girl with the dragon tattoo, and that was the greatest achievement their gift giving skills have ever reached. Um but as dad has gotten older, he's struggling with reading um violence against women, those kinds of things um, in fiction. Lots of us are. So I see you, dad. Um, he loves the TV show, Miss Fisher's Murder Mystery. So maybe something along those lines. Um, doesn't read a lot of lit fic, but does occasionally go into the classics. And he recently raved about Hidden Figures, which is a good indication of where his interests lie. Also, he likes all the dad movies like The Born Identity, The Shawshank Redemption and Westerns. His favorite superhero film is Wonder Woman. Um, which is also excellent. I kind of just want to hang out with your dad. Um, yeah, a lot of people points. we need to meet this year, <laughs> right. it seems like. Yeah. Bonus points if the main character is a woman. Dad prefers strong female leads. Yeah, dad's awesome. Um, you want to take this one? Yeah. Um, I don't read a lot of mysteries, but for whatever reason, this cracked my... Um, <laughs> this cracked my membrane of resistance to, <laughs> to, to mysteries. The Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz came out a couple years ago, and it came out when I was right in the middle of my, really the first time I ever got into Agatha Christie in a serious way. I read like 10 or 11 in one summer, mm. like in one summer, I mean like three weeks in the summer. I remember um, that. <laughs> and this novel came out in the middle, and I remember there were a lot of comps saying, for those of you like a classical whodunit, check this out. And it's a metatextual thing. So I'm like hook line. I was so ready for this. So Basically, the setup here is we have an editor who's reading a, a, a manuscript that is a mystery novel, and she comes to find out that the author of the novel dies in the middle of writing it, and it's missing the last chapter. So then the mystery is what happens in the book she's actually reading, but then also what happens to the person who is writing the book. It's great. It's so fun. It's so twisty. It's so clever. Um, Anthony Horowitz, it's out in paperback now. You've got a very interesting... Uh, female lead, not a detective necessarily, but you know, someone who's trying to figure stuff out. I, I just thought it was great. I think it's a really great, not step up, but step apart from a more classical thriller because it is metatextual and it's commenting upon the structure of mysteries and thrillers. So if you like mysteries and thrillers, you already have the lingua franca you need to sort of get it to be in on the joke for this. Hmm. And so I'm imagining the kind of thing that it's the kind of book that makes you feel smart for getting it. I love those kind of oh, books. I, I love like feeling that. smart. That's a great feeling. So um, that's my first one. And then I got off of my document and I can't. Oh, look, I don't. This is like recommending oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> Has your dad read Dan Brown? Now I'm green with jealousy. I mean, am I, just make sure. Just, <laughs> I'm not saying like find out. <laughs> Find out because if he hasn't, you can get mass market paperbacks. And you get like all of them for like twelve bucks, mm-hmm. and just sit him down and say, "Dad, you know, get some food, 
<laughs> you know, make make sure the rest of the make sure all your things are taken care of, and you're going to Dan Brown for the next six days, and then we'll you have a good new. We'll see you in the new year, Dad. Yeah, you will have given your dad a great week. Yeah, I suspect that he probably has, but maybe. And again, it's not a great female protagonist, and uh, even the female sort of co ponytail co ponytails uh, <laughs> with the Langdon aren't awesome. They're not. They, they're just they. The books just you just rip through them. I don't know what to tell you. They they have their own momentum that don't fight it uh just offer it to others with a humble heart and you'll be happy <laughs> all right um i latched on to dad things like the shawshank redemption first yeah. and you should give your dad the collection of stephen king novellas called different oh, seasons that's a great one too. that includes rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption the story upon which the movie is based and which I have declared on this very podcast is actually better than the movie. Um, mm. And then you and your dad can have your own. I know. I'm sorry that I'm mm-hmm. right about this. <laughs> um, but you and your dad can have book nerd movie hour together. You could read the novella too. I'm sure you have seen this movie with him a million times. That would be really fun. Um, my other pick is my sister, the serial killer, which I think is, I mean, it's super fun. I really enjoyed this book. Um, it's by Oyinkin Braithwaite. It's uh, set in Nigeria about two sisters, one of whom cannot stop killing her boyfriends and narrated by the sister who keeps getting called to show up. Um, Of course, the killer sister doesn't admit that she's killed the boyfriend. There's always some cover story and then they're mopping blood off of the bathroom floor, but it's not gory. Um, There's a lot of humor in it and um, there's also like a good sort of side plot tension about what happens when the narrator sister falls for or develops a huge crush on one of her co-workers and the co-worker starts dating the sister so the narrator is like oh my god she's gonna kill him what's gonna happen um it's real. it's just great and fun it's a really good like one afternoon read i think that's just a line drive down the middle um and then the last one that i thought of that's kind of in the like revenge thriller category is last woman standing by amy gentry it is um about a it's narrated by a female uh, comic who is telling sort of a me too story and she gets uh, involved with someone else who claims to also be like seeking revenge against the same guy who me tooed the narrator but of course things get a little more twisted than that um it was a good like i spent one afternoon with it and i was like okay this is solid like if you want to have a me too revenge fantasy with a strong female lead that's a pretty good place to go so that's last woman standing by amy gentry i skipped one i'll do it real quick i don't want to go back too mm-hmm. much but i i did want to mention a study in scarlet by sherry thomas and the conceit here is what if the the characteristics we know as sherlock holmes and the setting w- that we know as sherlock holmes were the same but those personality traits were actually born into a woman at the same time with all of the constraints that women had um, and that the Sherlock Holmes became a I don't, almost, I don't know what the, uh, the, the, the detective equivalent of a pen name for this woman so that she could do the thing she was best in the world at, which is solving difficult crimes and being stylish and aloof and cynical and sarcastic while doing it. They're great. They're really fun. Uh, the Star- I should say A Study in Scarlet is the first one. There's a couple more out now. And each of them so far has taken a classic Sherlock Holmes story and put a little English on it, in addition <laughs> to the conceit that the gender swapping is a little bit different and Holmes is set up differently. The whole thing's a little bit different. And again, it's one of those things, If well, most people know enough about Sherlock Holmes. You don't have to have read any of the original um, Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. Like Sher- Sherlock Holmes is a character like you know, Greek figures are characters now. So you don't need to have 
be a real Holmesian to to be into it, but they're really good reads. They're really clever. Um, I've very really enjoyed them too. Insofar as I think I'm 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 think I'm one behind now. So anyway, that's a study in Scarlet is the first one by Sherry Thomas. You can read them in any order, but the study in Charlotte sets up how the whole world works. So I'd recommend that. Okay, first I love Book Riot. Yes, that's Woo. it. Moving on. No, we okay, love you. It. We love you too. <laughs> um, Holiday Rex. My best friend has Asperger's and very particular reading taste. She does not do fiction. She really likes nonfiction, science-heavy books, ideally about animals or ideas rather than people. Uh, I'm going to skip some of the favorites. Just Soul of Octopus, Name Check, Breath of a Whale, Urban Bestiary. She works in space science and museum curation. What are all these people living way more interesting (laughs) lives than us? I'm not supposed to get FOMO from giving other people recs. That's not how this is supposed to work. You all have great friends is what we're learning. She also likes books about space and space science, but I don't even know where to start. Neither are my go-to genres that we both love. The Wild Snail enjoy discussing it together. I'd like to find something similar. Uh, let's start there. We could take these two parters at a time. So this is the okay. snail part. This is we, the snail part. For the snail person. Um, yeah. I think that the wild snail is a reference to, yeah, The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. I loved that book, these nature books. Like, I'm so delighted that we're doing this segment right now. Um, my first pick is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, she is uh, Native American. And as part of that, history, tradition, and culture, she subscribes to the idea that plants and animals um, have wisdom of their own and that they are teachers for us for um, knowledge about the natural world and then also ties into myths and sacred stories and history um, about nature and about the origins of things. And she's also a scientist. Um, So she draws on all of these aspects of her personality and just also her identity as a woman to reflect on different aspects of nature. It is packed with fantastic, interesting facts um, in a really beautifully written language um, that also has a strong ecological conservation sort of bent to it. It's a really beautiful book. Um, And the paperback has lovely French flaps. Like You just won't go wrong. Um, I also really, really loved On Trails by, what is his last name? Robert Moore. Um, It is a little bit of a winding collection of... It's a long essay that takes a lot of departures. The trail has many spurs um, about what trails are, why we have them, the significance of walking on a trail, um, how a trail is different from a road and is different from like a path and is different from just like going tromping through a field. And it's sort of a meditation on interactions with nature and also on how we move our bodies from place to place. It's really hard to sum up well. Um, But I, as somebody who loves nature and being outside, it gave me a lot of interesting stuff to chew on. Um, And then for something I think a little bit a little bit weirder, but really wonderful is um, Preparing the Ghost by Matthew Gavin Frank. Um, the subtitle is An Essay Concerning the Giant Squid and Its First Photographer. And it's ostensibly about the first person who was able to take a picture of the giant squid. But the narrative also like meanders off in some strange directions and then comes back around and you get history and some of the mythology around the giant squid, some really beautiful writing and just some kind of delightfully strange things. I think... Um, it tickled my brain in ways that I found to be very pleasing. So those are mine. And if she wants like a, if your friend wants a really straightforward nonfiction book about nature, the nature fix um, by Florence Williams is terrific about like all of the reasons we should be out in nature and what it does to our brains. 
Um, I hesitate even to recommend this one because if she is a curator of space science in a museum, I don't know if there's anything here, but it's a space book that I read recently and I loved, so here we go. It's called <laughs> One Giant Leap by Charles Fishman. It's an account of the Apollo space mission, um, how it happened, why it happened. Um, basically, the hypothesis is, un- in addition to being a very, you know, as a layperson, good history of how Apollo happened, especially interested in the politics of how it got funded, who was instrumental in the, you know, getting the crazy amount of money needed to fund Apollo. Like at one point, a quarter of the federal budget was Apollo um, in the 60s. Uh, And it alone was like the fourth biggest employer in the U.S. uh, at the peak of Apollo. So the political world in which it came out of, but also kind of taking to task the hypothesis, I guess, has become fashionable of late of, well, the, the moon was great, but what did it really get us? Like we haven't gone to Mars. We don't go back there anymore. It's not like moon rocks became like, you know, healing crystals that we could use in a whole bunch of ways. There are rocks that are actually a lot less useful than rocks we can find here. But basically said the thing that we needed to get to the moon were microchips, microprocessors. And the investment in microprocessor design, development, and manufacturing that the space program provided accelerated the timeline to the digital age by probably decades. The price of a single microprocessor came down 1,000 times um, in the space of about six years because of the computing power that the Apollo uh, missions needed for their guidance computers and um, command and control and all the other things that they needed to do. And the legacy of Apollo is not space, but your iPhone, for, for, you know, mm. to, to oversimplify, um, which I thought was really interesting. I've seen Apollo 13. I've seen For All Mankind. I've seen, um, what was the one, Earth to the Moon. Like, I know the, the uh, I've seen the right stuff. Like, I know all that. But the bigger context I thought was really interesting in terms of the technology that it spawned and the political will, messaging, and environment that was required for it to get there. So maybe that's something that, as much if she knows a bunch about space, maybe that kind of is a, a different particular spin. Then two other picks that are more on the getting into the minutia of how things work. The Beak of the Finch by Jonathan Weiner. This is someone who likes specificity, who likes cataloging, who likes data, who likes the idea of being obsessed with something. This is the story of two ornithologists who went out to the Galapagos Islands and every season would measure the beaks of these finches that lived on this one island to see if they could see evolution happen in the span of a human life, and they did. Basically, the beaks of the finches would change um, over time based on the climate and the availability of food sources and the kind of food source available. Long story short, when things were flush, the finches with short, stronger beaks survived and procreated more, so there's more finches with short beaks because the nuts and seeds were larger and you needed a bigger beak to get as much calories out of them as you could. When things were dry and over time, the the finches with longer and thinner beaks survived because they could get their beak down to nooks and crannies to get at the seeds that weren't available, that you could get more of the available biomass of calories um, by having a thin beak. And it went over time and it correlated with the weather. Basically in real time, Demonstrating, not proving because those words are different, <laughs> demonstrating Darwinian evolution in, uh, in the span of a human life in the place where Darwin thought of it. I thought it was great. I loved it. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's great. And you have to be the right kind of person. Sounds like your friend might be or the wrong kind of person to, to like this kind of book. I really do. Now, uh, one that's more of a, a crowd pleaser is, is oh, so this much is about a good one. 
in so much as there are crowd pleasing books about microbiology, <laughs> this is I a solid multiples. I contain multiples. I had young. It's like there's a lot of stuff in your body, like trillions of microbes and other things in your body, and they do all sorts of stuff. Some of which we know, some of which we don't. But there's a really good case to be made that you are no more than the sum of the little one-celled things inside of you. Kind of a mind-bending book in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like there's a lot going on here. Um, in addition to me wanting a donut, um, <laughs> that may or may not lead to me wanting a donut. But boy, it does seem relevant there. So. Um, several levels of geekiness there, but I, I hope somewhere we got the full rainbow of possibility of yeah. uh, science geekery for you. I co-signed that I contain multitudes recommendation that I just mm. loved that Ed Young was like, bacteria gets a bad rap and I'm here to give you 400 pages about why yes. you should be so interested yes. instead. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. Uh, second request is selfish. I need a gift for myself from Santa. I'm traditionally a literary fiction person, but I've been on a cookbook kick of late. I often check cookbook out from the library, but would like to treat myself something great for the house. I'd love a great cookbook recommendation. I'm allergic to cheese, so I lean towards vegan cookbooks because I avoid that. But I'm open to all suggestions. I especially love food from other cultures with lots of flavor and spice. Okay. If it's food writing meat cookbook, I would like to seed... Chairman, I'd like to seed my time (laughs) to the congresswoman from Virginia. (laughs) Who cooks with a lot of butter. Um, I had to to, uh, do some research here because I am a Southern kind of cook who does cook with a lot of the things that you're probably not eating in a, um, in a vegan diet. But I think we're going to come back to salt, fat, acid, heat here because, Mm. um, there are a lot of dishes with interesting spices. Um, there are a lot of dishes that either are vegetarian or can be made into vegetarian or vegan. Samin Nosrat sort of offers those options throughout. And if you're familiar with how to do the substitutions that do work for your specific dietary stuff, I think you could get a lot out of salt, fat, acid, heat. Um, Vegan for Everybody from America's Test Kitchen got great reviews um, in all of the stuff that I looked for online. I have personally eaten um, some wonderful vegan dishes that a friend cooked from a cookbook called Oh She Glows that as I Googled around to find it, it apparently also has a great reputation um, for vegan cooking. And then one that looks great um, is Afro Vegan Farm Fresh African Caribbean and Southern Flavors Remixed by Bryant Terry. And I think that that would scratch your itch for interesting food from a variety of cultures with great flavor and spice um, that doesn't have to be you know meat-based um, or contain a lot of the stuff that you can't eat. So I can only speak to my experience really from cooking out of salt, fat, acid, heat, and what my friend has made from Oshi Glows. Those were both great, but you kind of can't go wrong with anything from America's Test Kitchen. Those cookbooks are excellent. And Afro Vegan comes highly recommended. All right. I got no picks. Sorry. All right. Well, this next one I got no picks for. (laughs) All right. You read. I'll respond. All right. Um, We are looking for somebody who is in a group of 20-something girlfriends that do a book exchange every holiday season, looking for something to hole up and spend the day reading after they have gifted it. They grew up as nerds together, watching Doctor Who, obsessing over Harry Potter, reading fantasy fiction like Graceling by Kristen Cashore and the Ella Enchanted series by Gail Levine. Now they're in their mid-20s, working in all corners of the globe in engineering, grad school, public interest and law, looking for a book that would capture the same fun and whimsy of our reading from young adult years and that they could enjoy during a day of light, cozy holiday reading. I didn't have anything that like bubbled up to mind, like fun and whimsy and fantasy are just not in my wheelhouse. But listener, I want to tell you, I love this tradition and I really want to Mm. do this with my friends. I had a problem with the stand. I mean, implied here was a standaloneness. Did you get Mm. that, Rebecca, from this? Because you can... 
Yeah, I think there is, or at least it would need to be like the first in a series that yeah, they're going to sit right. down and spend the day. Yeah. What a mo- what kind of monster would recommend the second book in a series? <laughs> what, 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 what kind of person would do that? Um, it's like those people that leave um, quarters glued to the ground on the sidewalks. The same, the same deviant personality. That's not that's that's a party foul of the highest order. I've got two picks here. I went a little off script because I. I don't know if I recommended this. This is approaching the RSTL and E of our recommendations. I think a dark the the Shades of Magic series mm, by V. Mm-hmm. E. Schwab. The first book is a darker shade shade of magic. There's three of them. Has the virtue of a very handsome collection you can buy all at once. Thirty bucks or so in paperback. They look great on the shelf. They're very attractive. I love these. My both of my brothers, my brothers and I don't have a lot of shared reading space, but this is one of them, sort of adult fantasy. Um, that's not high fantasy. So the idea here is there's three Londons and they have various levels of magic in them from basically one that I think is ours or, you know, a version of ours to one that's like fully magic dominated. And there's one very closely held, I don't know, nexus that you can go between them and it's only in a certain place and only certain people can do it. So there's not a lot of movement back and forth. But as you would imagine, there's some knowledge of each other in the different places, and that becomes a thing. It's got a, it's got a couple of really good characters, including, I can't remember the character's name because it's been a while since I read it, but she's like a thief slash rogue. She's great. Um, and there's a love story, and there's, they're long, which can be a virtue if you're looking for the kind of thing where you get to live in that universe for a while. I just really like this um, series. I've recommended it a whole bunch of times. I'm glad it exists in the world. The other one, this one I've only read the first one of, and I've been kind of saving the rest, and I don't know why. Um, It's City of Brass by um, S.A. Chakraborty. And it's like, so it's set in 18th century Cairo, and this young woman is sort of a con artist, sort of street person. And in running one of her cons, she actually conjures a jinn warrior, sort of magical being, and then get swept up in, oh, all this stuff I've been told about of all the this, jinns and genies and all this kind of, you know, North African, Middle Eastern mythology is real. And then stuff happens. Um, it's called the Devabad Trilogy. The first one's called City of Brass. It's more high fantasy, but I really liked it too. So those are my two mm-hmm. picks. Again, they're series. I don't have a great standalone. I was going to pick The Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. But I don't think it's quite what you're looking for. Um, but it's a standalone. You might look at that. if It's a little older. It's set at Yale. There's Secret Society. I really liked it, but it didn't give me the right vibe. But that was my initial mm-hmm. pick. But I, but I uh, pivoted off that. While you were talking and you mentioned Underground London, I remembered Angel Maker by Nick ah. Harkaway, which I think might work for you here. It's kind of a spy thriller, kind of a alternate, well, it is like an alternate London. It's about a guy named Joe Spork who fixes clocks. Um, He fixes clocks because his father was one of the most powerful gangsters in London, and he did not want to go into that lifestyle. He's been trying to avoid any involvement in the underground. But one day he repairs a weird clockwork mechanism and accidentally, unknowingly, um, starts a doomsday machine uh, that has these like weird mechanical bees involved. And 
the whole, I mean, the whole thing is like madcap and bonkers. Um, there's like an 80 year old former spy named Edie Bannister, who is really super fun to spend time with. There is a great girl, like sort of girl Friday character named Polly as well. Um, really memorable, just really memorable, fun scenes. There's a lot of whimsy in this book. There are codes to crack, um, just super enjoyable characters. It's a little long. I don't know, like not Mm. too long as the book itself, but it might be a little long for trying to like sit down and read it all in one day. If being able to read the whole book in one day is part of this ritual with your friends, I'm not totally clear, but you could spend a very enjoyable day making some good progress in Angel Maker. I think that would be a lot of fun. Oh, we're now doing improvisational picks. I've got one more. (laughs) Maybe I should have thought that as a standalone Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. I have not a love hate with Gaiman, but like for me, the, I've read all the Gaiman and like there's some I love and some of nah. Neverwhere I think is my favorite Neil Gaiman. It's also set in London, so you got a whole like London mm-hmm. fantasy pick thing going on here. And this one, there's a kind of like the upside down from Stranger Things London. It's not quite like that. It's 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 more like a purgatory version of London, and there's a cast of characters that have one of the things we like in these sorts of stories i think is sort of a um found family is a little bit strong but they're strange bedfellows that have common purpose Mm -hmm. and there's some tension among them even if they try to figure out the mystery and what's going on one of the rare books that was a standalone because i know you guys know about o'neill razor that when it was an (laughs) end and i knew it was a standalone i was like crap there's not another one of these because i really wanted more in the world i think at some point we were told there was going to be another one or it's been sick it's not out there yet so i I think technically it does fulfill O'Neill's razor because we don't know for sure that there's another one happening. But this one, 370 pages, you will rip through it. That is absolutely a sit-down. You could read it on December 26th, kind of a day. I still like Darker Shades of Magic better. I like the series better. But if you want to get one where you can all get through, I think Neverwhere may be the answer there. Okay, now that we spent 10,000 years on <laughs> something we felt like neither of us had a great a- answer for, Isn't that uh, always we the way? can move along. Um, okay, love the... Oh, wait, sponsor first, and then we'll, we'll do... We're getting close. Striking distance here. Yeah. Hi, love the podcast. Looking for book recommendations for my mom. We're both readers, but our styles and likes are very different. She said she liked Karen uh, Moaning's Fever series and books about fairies and phase. She doesn't do specific gore, gives her nightmares, hi, uh, or anything about the Holocaust. Hello. Um, I mentioned Stephen King's 112263, and she was interested in that. Trying to use my name, Brittany, your mom knows you're asking for her. Oh, Brittany's mom, if you're listening to this, hi, Brittany's mom. <laughs> um, this one just finished. Speaking of O'Neill's Razor, I have not read it, but I know people who have, and it is the Folk of the Air series by Holly Black. I believe there are three of them. Oh, maybe more. Hmm. One, two. Oh, there's a, like a one and a half. There's an interregnum. No, no. But the first mm-hmm. one's A Cruel Prince. Um, it is high fantasy with fairies, a best-selling book. Um, so it's, I think for in this genre, probably, I guess I'm a little, I would be surprised, or I wouldn't be surprised if your mom had heard of this or read this already frankly. Um, and this, they're fairies with a little bit of an edge to them. I don't know enough about sort of our common understanding of mythology to sort of place this representation fairies into the wider world of fairydom, but it sounds like this is a little bit of an edge, but not gory. I did take a look at that. There's some court intrigue. Um, it, it looks like just the kind of thing your mom is looking for. I can't recommend it personally, 
But if I were you, this is what I'd be buying for. I got tangled up trying to answer this question because it was like, mm. what else does she like? If she doesn't do specific gore or anything about the Holocaust, but she likes Fays and Fairies and she was open to Stephen King, I was like, it sounds like maybe mom reads pretty widely and these are just mm. the restrictions. So I'm taking a wild guess. Um, but these are just two novels that I really loved that I think are widely recommendable. The first is City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. Came out earlier this year. I almost missed the boat on this book and I'm really, really glad that I got to it. Um, it's a big juicy novel that Elizabeth Gilbert Gilbert herself said that she wanted it to be like drinking a glass of champagne and it definitely was Um, it is narrated um, from the perspective of an older woman looking back on her looking back on her whole life, really, um, the story begins in 1940 when she's 19 years old and she's been kicked out of Vassar um, because she was not a good student. Her parents send her to New York to live with her aunt Peg, who owns this like falling down theater in Midtown. Um, And there's a whole cast of unconventional and enjoyable and weird and delightful characters um, involved in putting on plays at this falling down playhouse. Um, Vivian, our narrator, discovers like freedom as a young woman in New York City in 1940 and Mm. discovers sexuality and um, discovers through watching Aunt Peg's life with all of these people who have made unconventional choices that there are so many different ways to live your life than just the way that her parents raised her to think you had to grow up and be um, in her life in the suburbs. Um, And now from her perspective, I think she's almost 90 as she's narrating it. She's looking back on her life and it is just wonderful. Um, Just a wonderful, like rich story um, filled with rich and interesting characters about an unconventional woman um, and how she became that really, really wonderful. Um, From a few years ago, I also really disliked Rich and Pretty by Ruman Alam, which is a great novel that you can take down in a couple of hours um, about two best friends. Um, One is getting married and the other one is going to be in the wedding and their friendship is very tangly. One of the girls is rich and the other one is pretty. Um, Those are not their names, but that's how they think of themselves and how people around them have come to think of them. Um, It's been a while since I read it. I remember really enjoying it. And if your mom is open to a variety of fiction, I think this is just like a solid, enjoyable novel that she could pick up. Um, Ruman Alam also had a more recent novel called Not That Kind of Mother. Um, That's a little bit on the darker side and inspired by um, kind of an obsession that he has with um, Princess Diana and that story. And one of the characters um, is really into Princess Diana. It's set back in the 80s. Um, But that might be worth a look as well. So who knows? That's a wild guess. I have no idea how that's going to (laughs) land. I like it. You know, Okay. let's do something, even if it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Uh, I need a cookbook recommendation for my dad. He's recently started cooking beyond using the grill in the summer and gets most of his recipes online. He and I both love breakfast food and usually meet up once a week to partake in waffles and eggs. Oh, I'd like That's to get really him something sweet. we can use together. I'm also not great in the kitchen, especially since we're doing a big group family holiday trip right after Christmas. It doesn't necessarily have to be a breakfast book, but something that has vegetarian options as well would be appreciated. You know what? I've, this is something that's on my list. It's on my Christmas list, mm. even though it's on my shelf right now. And I'll tell you why. Because I've renewed it from the library about 19,000 times in a row. And it is How to Bake Everything by Mark Bittman. It's great. I do waffles and pancakes at least once a week for my family. A couple things I like about Bittman. One, even though he lied to us with How to Cook Everything, calling it How to Cook Everything because he has follow-up books, which is, you know, whatever. This book has the basic recipes you want for anything, you know, an American is going to want to make, especially one that makes waffles and eggs 
in the morning. You like buttermilk waffles? You like buttermilk waffles. There are three standard waffle recipes in How to Bake Everything, depending on how much time you want to give it. You want to do the overnight one? Do the overnight one. It's great and fluffy. You got 10 minutes? There's a 10 minutes one. It's also really good. Also, one thing Bitman's really good about, and I think probably most general sort of encyclopedic um, cookbooks are good about now. There's a new Joy of Cooking that just come out looks interesting too, is giving you vegan, gluten-free, and vegetarian uh, variations next to the, the regular recipe. So if you want to try one of those, you can. So the other day, I made lemon ricotta pancakes. Great. Made key, same basic pancake recipe with some variations. We also did in key lime pancakes. We did other mm. kinds of things. So it's not hard to do. I like to bake. I'm very bad at it. But with Bitman, I'm like, there's a bunch of stuff here. The no-need bread he has, really simple, tastes great. You kind of get to play with it a little bit. I've failed at some of these. I still have a good time. It's the kind of reference baking book you really do want. And this is, I'm not sure it says waffles and eggs, but there's things like I've done popovers from it. I've done peanut butter cookies where I forgot the butter and they turned into peanut butter clay. You know, it's been really fun to do with the kids. It's a great reference thing. Um, also, highly recommend his biscuit recipe. And there's a variation that you, you can either choose yogurt or buttermilk. Do the yogurt one. I know it sounds weird, but Bittman's yogurt biscuits are no. insane. Jeff. It's so good. So good. Buttermilk or nothing, man. <laughs> I did them both. I did both the buttermilk <laughs> one because that's how we do them in our house. But the yogurt one's better. I, it's, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's facts. <laughs> um, so that's my pick. How to Bake Everything by Mark Bittman. Um, also, I don't know if he doesn't have a lot of books or you know, you're going to be traveling, get us an ebook. I think cookbooks, especially this, there's not a lot of illustrations because it's so just information rich. Not a bad thing on your phone to just have in your iBooks or Kindle library or whatever. Mm. You can do the search and just find it super easy. Um, you can make, you know, on the phone or iPad or whatever, you can also play with the font, make it bigger or smaller. One thing I struggle with when I'm cooking in the, in the kitchen is like I'm over at one side of the kitchen and the thing's over there. And yeah, I can put on my iPad and make the, the recipe giant the size of a screen, kind of cook off it that way. So it will feel a little bit like the thing you could do on online recipes, like make the online recipe as big and, you know, thing, and you're not just carrying around this giant book. So that might be a consideration too. I think new hardcover, um, it's a $35 retail. You could probably get it used because it's been out for a while and people get rid of cookbooks because it's like, you know, exercise bikes. They think they're going to bake it and then they don't and then they get rid of it. But that's How to Bake Everything by Mark Bitt. Man, I'm so delighted we're talking about so many food books. So Foods today. and dads. Foods and Isn't dads. It? This is yeah. pretty, like our wheelhouse has expanded and mm. I feel good about it. Um, yeah. Also, I really want to have breakfast with my dad once a week. This sounds so lovely. Yes, this, like, thank, We're getting such good, lovely stories from people um, this year. So I have a couple. I spent the summer on a mission to, like, I'm a, I will say I'm a pretty good cook. I'm a, like, I'm a solid cook. I am not traditionally a great baker. I've just been intimidated by it. I like the improvisation of cooking and that it can be imprecise. Um, I'm a little bit of a chaos muppet in the kitchen and baking. I was just scared of like the precision and having to do exact with things. But a friend who bakes really excellent pies turned me onto a cookbook called Sister Pie by Lisa Litwinski. Um, she is the owner of a bakery in Detroit called Sister Pie. And they do um, like 
interesting twists on your flavor, your favorite flavors. So there's like the cherry pie, but also it has um, bourbon in the mix or the apple pie has Gouda added into the dough and some sage added in with the apples and the filling just makes the flavors a little bit more interesting. There are just a couple kinds of dough that you can work on and master from the book. I like that practice of like getting better at figuring out how the dough works. It's really simple and straightforward and all the flavors are really interesting. Like I spent my summer making pies and biscuits. I'm good at both of them now. And the pie part is definitely because of sister pie. Um, Just really good, interesting recipes. Also, what is better for breakfast, especially in the winter, than a cup of coffee and a slice of pie? So I vote for like get together with your dad, make a pie, and then have breakfast of that pie the next Mm. day. Um, For just like feeling better about your abilities in the kitchen, uh, Small Victories by Julia Tertian is wonderful, um, really straightforward recipes, but also each recipe offers variation. So it's like, here's a meatball recipe. And if you wanted it to be um, made without pork here, you could do it with chicken or you could do it with ground up chickpeas for it to be vegetarian. Like she offers different twists on everything. And each recipe also includes something that she calls a small victory, which is like either a time saver or a great trick that you can learn. Um, just really great fun. It it makes cooking really fun to think about like, Oh, I'm going to learn how to do this thing. And then once I know how to do this, I can do this other thing. It kind of adds up and iterates on itself. Um, And then my go-to cookbook for the last couple of years, I feel like I'm going to recommend it forever and ever. Amen is dining in by Alison Roman. It is phenomenal. There's a great breakfast section, um, but also just fantastic recipes throughout. And her take is like that food can be delicious and elegant without being fancy or hard to make. The recipes don't have a million ingredients. They just have like solid quality, interesting flavors. Um, And I haven't cooked anything out of dining in that has not been wonderful. She has a new book that just came out called Nothing Fancy. That's about, um, I think the tagline is don't entertain, have people over or something like that. And it's about, it's more recipes geared towards like having a small gathering, like having people over for dinner or hosting a brunch. Um, But you can easily just adapt them for I'm cooking these things at home because they sound good for me and my dad. And I've just been cooking them at home for me and my husband and random friends who happen to be around. Um, She's really great. I think Alison Roman makes um, food that feels really like you'll feel like a successful cook um, when you make her recipes and you'll enjoy eating them, but it's also like really demystifies the process. She doesn't want it to be intimidating or seem too fancy. And I just love all of those happy uh, baking and eating brief, brief rant. Yes. So I just looked up how to bake everything to see what the sticker price was new hardcover and Amazon. Your mileage may vary where you can get it. 1859, pretty good discount over uh, 35 bucks. Kindle mm-hmm. edition. No, no. Oh, no. 1999. No. I mean, and this is a, you've probably seen, you know what. I have. These are This is a substantial book. (laughs) But apparently it's cheaper for the hardcover. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's get out of here before I really (laughs) blow a gasket. Um, Don't buy the Kindle one out of spite, I guess. It would be so flexible to use. Uh, what are we doing last? I lost my sheet. That my my rage has now impaired my ability to actually navigate our agenda here. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is a tough one. Mm-hmm. This is a hard. You read this one. I think this is the end. And I, I, do I have the only recommendation for this? Oh, I think I just missed this one, but I'm I'm adding oh, okay. recommendations the, on the fly. <laughs> do the read, and I'll lead. I'll lead off, and then you can. Um, 
recommend okay. on the fly while I'm jabbing. So um, this listener is looking for recommendations for a stepbrother who's gotten deeply into the world. Uh, we got two here. Um, stepbrother is deeply into the world of fixie bikes and racing over the past year and a half. Um, if you're unfamiliar with fixies, I am unfamiliar with fixies. They're bikes where you can only use one gear. You don't have brakes. They require pedaling the entire time you're riding. She would love to find a book for him that's either about the world of cycling or something cycling adjacent. He's also interested in engineering and building small projects. So let's start there. Um, these are both great gift books that I weirdly listened to on audio, even though I knew it was a mistake, because Randall Monroe is a cartoonist and engineer. Um, his website is more famous than his name, which I think is XCKD, mm-hmm. where he does really insouciant, smart, brainy illustrations about largely science oriented things, but every now and again, we'll have a breakout viral thing about politics or something else. But in What If, which is the first one, and the sequel or the sequel follow-up book is How To, he basically with What If is like, he gets a bunch of reader questions about what if X crazy thing happened? Like what if, um, the, what if all the water on Earth were suddenly sucked into a portal and put on Mars? What would happen to Mars and Earth? And he applies pretty hard science to try to figure out what would happen. And he gives you the math. He'll give the equations. He'll also give you illustrations and um, demonstrations in the form of um, drawings of what you might look like. So someone who likes engineering and is technically minded and has a sense of humor and fun will like both of these. How-to is more like if you wanted to do X, like if you wanted to fill a pool without using tap water, what would be the best way to do it? If you wanted to jump as high as possibly could, how would you go about doing it? And you learn something about how the world works, but also you get a little bit of that sort of... um, absurdity of a kind of tinker's brain that can be really fun. Plus, they're wonderful gifts because you flip through them, you can share right there while you're giving it, like look at this thing about someone trying to ride their motorcycle over flowing lava, how fast would you have to go, that kind of thing. It's really fun, and I don't have any World of Cycling requests, but there are some things about bikes in there, Um, and if they're engineering-minded it's really fun. Another thing, if they're not a, an amazingly dedicated reader, you can pick it up. You can put it down. It's kind of a great coffee table, bathroom book, too. I don't know if we talk about those kinds of things anymore either. But just a lot of fun in two packages. Uh, of the two, I think I would recommend What If, um, the first one. Uh, if you can find that in hardcover, remaindered, or used, I think that's what I would suggest. Um, How To is also great. And you can tell them if he likes What If. Uh, get how to or tell them it doesn't exist and you can use it for a birthday <laughs> gift down the line. <laughs> um, I latched on to like this bit about fixies as like you kind of have to do the work. Like yeah. you're, you don't get to change gears. You have to pedal the whole time. And it, I'm guessing, but it seems to me that a person who likes that is thinking about their activity and their work in a certain kind of way. And that jogged my memory of Shop Class as Soul Craft by Matthew B. Crawford, um, which is kind of a like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance mm. for modern, for like for our contemporary time. Um, Crawford writes about, he's a mechanic. Um, there's a um, motorcycle on the cover. So not quite fixie bikes. We're dealing with motors here. But the book is kind of a meditation from both like economic and psychological and sociological perspectives about like the value of doing something with your hands, um, of making something, the value of manual Mm. labor, of like why we feel this need to 
work hard and to make stuff and to do things the hard way, um, which it sounds to me like riding a fixie bike might be actively choosing to do something the harder way for reasons of personal fulfillment. I think that there might just be something there. Um, so I would check that out. That's just a guess. Um, I hope I'm not painting your Mm. fixie bike loving, um, stepbrother unfairly or inaccurately, but I think that might be a, I think that might be a solid guess. Um, the next one is they're looking for a book for stepdad, um, thinking of getting him some fancy seeds, um, to plant in his vegetable garden and wondering if we have any good food writing to accompany such a gift. He enjoys quite a bit. He enjoys cooking quite a bit and is a recipe follower. Um, where did you go with this one? I like both of these books. Um, in fact, I read both of these books and then went to read the rest of the author's back catalog. Um, mm-hmm. these, are, these are dad food books. I think I just coined a new phrase. So The $64 <laughs> Tomato by Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander wants to make – it's nonfiction, I should say. And he wants to have um, a great um, home garden. And so it's the story of him building a – you know, a semi-professional cook's ideal version of a home garden and all that he goes through to build it. And at the end, the title suggests that by the end, he figures out that every year it ends up costing him $64 (laughs) per tomato uh, to grow these wonderful heirloom tomatoes. Not only that amount of money, but uh, an an amazing amount of time. So there's a how-to travel log, but in your own backyard. Like, how does this thing actually work? What are the things you run into around it. I'm really good. Also, he wrote a book called 52 Loaves, where he tried to recreate this specific boule that he ate in France. And he goes all over the world to try to learn how to bake and eventually goes to this French monastery and lives with monks for a few weeks to learn how to cook bread. And it's it's kind of like the A.J. Jacobs of very specific things, not ideas, <laughs> like like just following a, an obsession to an absurd uh, conclusion, but in, in the form of a tomato or a loaf of bread. Then My Year in Provence by Peter Mail. I think I've talked about this before. You have, yeah. Peter Mail goes to move, moves to Provence and lives there. And the first one's the best one. The, the rest are all fine, but the, the first one really is the best one. It talks about the exigencies of actually moving to southern France and has to pay half of the purchase price of his house in cash under the table because of how taxes work and all the absurdities that are true in every culture but are brought to bear um, in starkest relief by uh, uh, a new citizen who loves wine, who loves food. Largely, Peter Mail's writing, I didn't know this at the time, was credited or, or a major factor in Provence becoming a major tourist destination and bringing rosé back. Huh. As something that was popular, because when apparently when our parents were our age, I'm throwing you in sadly with me, Rebecca, as being about the same age now. Oh, I'm sorry yeah. about that. Um, no one drank rosé, but Peter Mail, I think the first book came out in the 80s, and over time, the popularity of Provence as a travel station and rosé as being a particular export and product of Provence became a a staple. And now now you go to a wine store and it looks like most wine places are like rosé forward, especially in the summertime. It's like it's rosé and everything else in the summer, uh, especially too. But it's wonderful, beautiful writing. It's the kind of thing that makes you want to go live somewhere else. And I think I think that's what we want from travel writing in a lot yes. of ways. Like I kind of feel like I want to live in this place and I'm a little sad that I don't. Is that what we want? I've, I've been thinking about this of late, but I, I don't know. But definitely that's the feeling I had after reading My Year in Provence by Peter Mail. Yeah, I want from travel writing at least 
that like yearning or nostalgia for somewhere I've never been. Like yeah. I, I need to go there and see that thing and feel the way it feels to be in, in that place mm-hmm. looking at that thing. Yeah. Okay. First off, Dad needs to read Buttermilk Graffiti by yep, Edward yep. Lee. Um, that's definitely in the RSTL and E of our book recommendations now. We talked about it last week. Um, so I'll shout that one out again. Um, and Jeff, I feel bad taking this next pick because it's a book I read because you recommended it to me. Um, but The Best Cook in the World by Rick Bragg. I did think, in my defense, I did think about it. It's does not eat red meat caught me up i know there's biscuits and stuff but it just felt like there's so much it's pork just, and stuff in there i love hey, okay. i love the book i love right the book. okay so the best cook in the world is more about like it's more about the food writing than it is about the recipe that's fair though. fair um a lot of food writing is about pig dead pig but you know. right <laughs> um rick bragg is writing about uh the subtitles tales from my mama's table and it's gr- mm. this is very southern um growing up in the south the food that he remembers his mother cooking and his mother is also just a character um, that you hear stories about his family and his childhood and uh, just sort of stereotypical, like in quotation marks, Southern family kinds of stuff that happens. Um, the recipes I think are great. We could quibble over how he makes biscuits too, but I really, really loved it. I, th- I think that's a really phenomenal piece of food writing. Mm-hmm. And I pro- it's very sweet also. I just would not have um, probably wouldn't have gotten there without your recommendation. I really loved it. So I'm, I feel like we can co-recommend that. And since dad is maybe interested in fancy seeds, or you're at least interested in giving him fancy seeds, this is more of a straightforward cookbook, but there's a lot of good writing in it. It's Heritage by Sean Brock. Um, he's a Southern cook. He opened a restaurant in Charleston, the name of which is escaping me right now, um, that is also really terrific and um, has opened several other restaurants in the meantime. And he is known for finding like very obscure heirloom seeds and heirloom varieties mm. of um, grains and like grains and rices and certain tomatoes and things that have been historically part of Southern cooking traditions um, and working to bring them back into like the public dining experience, public food consciousness, and also continuing to cultivate them so that those seeds and varieties continue to exist. Um, it is not the most practical cookbook. Um, Amanda bought it for herself and then was like, I have to order 17 specialty ingredients in order to try to cook this recipe. Um, But as an object, it is a beautiful cookbook and there's a lot to learn about food history in there. So if your dad might enjoy reading the cookbook more than necessarily making things from it, that's Mm -hmm. my caveat there. But um, if he likes fancy seeds, it's pretty excellent. I think that's it. You want to do it? How about a Swiss Army? One each? Oh, I was unprepared. I'll go first. I, can't, I, I was ready for this, and I don't. I guess I could have put it in a different couple of places. It never felt quite right. I had this. I had this one in the chamber for this mm. because I've recommended and talked about the book this a lot this year. I know I recommend it to you. From Scratch by Tembi Locke. Mm. Oh man, it's a five alarm snot bomb. It, it, it is, and there's a lot of the thing. The food thing got me thinking about because there's a lot of food places that people are asking food for, but it didn't. It feels like it's more of a food book than it is, or it's like it. I got bait and switch is the wrong term because I think I just didn't understand. I'm glad I read it. No question about it because it's something I've talked about a lot. But Tembi Locke, it's, it's a memoir. She's a black woman from Los Angeles. Did I already recommend this book? I thought I did. did I just talk about this? Maybe I feel like you I did. just did the spiel. Maybe it was last week. <laughs> well, I have to cut this. Off. I don't I have remember. To cut all this out. I have to, uh, I have to cut. I'm, gonna, I'm doing a find and replace here. I don't see it. No. Oh, you know what? It was a it was a um, wild card in the moment because I was like, mm. I got to put this somewhere. Anyway, that's my pick of the year. 
I think just for my memory of reading it, that book is my book of the year for myself from scratch. Tim, let's do that. What is my book of the year? I am unprepared. That's fine. We can catch it and follow up. I am unprepared to answer that question. I will have to consider a book. I loved this year that I think I will be giving to a lot of people um, was Emily Nussbaum's book. I love to watch um, about TV and great essays about like, she's a, the TV, you know, TV reviewer Mm. for the New Yorker. So lots of essays about great TV and interesting thinking about TV and pop culture. And that's a, that's a solid gift. I'm really going to have to ponder what is Mm. my book of 2019, but I will report back. I'll do my homework. Also, I'm not usually the the viral vector for a lot of book riot books, but I feel like I was for From Scratch. A lot of people on our side read From Scratch. I think Scratch, you were. I think a yeah. lot of it's because I talked about it, mm-hmm. which I'm proud of because I really like that. Book. You should be. It's a good one. Um, but if you're going to give that, go to Costco and get one of those big freaking Kleenex monuments <laughs> that they sell there. You know. Yep. <laughs> one of those ones you could use as a barricade if you needed to. You're going to need them. Yeah, just wrap yourself in flannel before uh, you, you go building in there. stories. That's the one I wish I had. All right. That's a great recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) On that note. Let's get out of here. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.